1: What's up, guys? I am so excited to bring you the man that taught us how to not only sleep smarter, but also eat smarter. Sean Stevenson is the health expert, creator, and host behind the Model Health Show. Today, we're talking about the positive and negative effects of inflammation, how our thoughts influence how food affects our body and metabolism, and we also talk about drug companies and why you should take the time to research to really know what prescription drugs you may be putting into your body. I'm confident you guys will find at least one action item to take from this episode to improve your health and optimize your life the way that you want it. And if you do, please leave a review on our podcast. That's the best way to support us so we can get the show out there to more people around the globe. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory. Sean Stevenson, welcome back to the show. I am very excited to talk to you. And at the end, I want everybody to stay tuned because I'm gonna give you the best John Stevenson quote, which sums up one of the most important principles you will ever encounter in your life. But first I wanna ask you, for people that struggle with weight loss and or chronic inflammation, what is something that they can add to their diet that would help? Or
0: is this simply a game of stripping away? Oh, it's such a great question. You know, even if we look at something like obesity, it's always important to look at what is the underlying foundation of this outward appearance or this outward manifestation of a thing, right? And so this term inflammation has been gaining traction, it's been around for a long time. And you know, the Latin and Greek roots, it's essentially to set ablaze, right? Mm-hmm. To set something on fire. And inflammation can get drugged through the mud as this bad thing, and we wanna stop all inflammation, but inflammation is critical for All functions of life. Without inflammation, we wouldn't heal from an infection. We wouldn't heal from wounds. We wouldn't heal from a workout, right? It's a critical part of our lives and of our livelihood. However, when we dip into this place of chronic inflammation, right? Acute inflammation is one thing, but it's kind of like a low grade fever. Mm. And one of the things that we know today is that when our fat cells are overly full, they start to send out sort of this false distress signal pulling in immune factors as if you're infected. And so researchers at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine found out how this is connected. And essentially one of the biggest issues with inflammation is hypothalamic inflammation in the brain, okay? So we've got inflammation in the body from the fat cells distress signal. And they found that this inflammation in the brain brain was creating more body fat and creating higher levels of metabolic dysfunction and that metabolic metabolic dysfunction and higher levels of body fat was creating more inflammation in the brain. So what do we do to help to bring a resolution here? Because what happens is a vicious circle, obviously. If neuroinflammation is creating more body fat and body fat is creating more neuroinflammation, we're getting trapped in this vicious circle. Yeah. And most people are stuck in that. And their favorite Instagram you know, uh, account or even their physician isn't telling them, we need to address this inflammation, specifically in your brain, to help to heal your body, so researchers at Auburn Univer- University found that there's this particular food, and I don't have a dog in the fight. I didn't. I didn't care this Not much like about you're the food. By yeah, and, and you know I was just blown away that this actually had this action in the body. And what they found was that oleocanthal-rich, extra virgin olive oil, is able to help to reduce neuroinflammation, specifically helping to heal the blood-brain barrier, which is, has a tendency to get broken down mm. by our abnormal diet, allowing more of these kind of toxicants into the brain and creating more inflammation. Do they know the method of action? No, we know so little still. You know? We know a ton in nutrition right now, but we probably know maybe 1% of all that there is to know right now. Yep. It's still so much more for us to, to discover. And so when folks are reaching out to learn from folks, you gotta keep in mind that even your favorite expert know so little, and we can tend to put all of our eggs in one basket, in a sense, Mm -hmm. with a certain diet framework, a belief about diet, we might find out later on that olive oil has some opposite effect. But this is what we know right now. And I always like to point people to leaning into tradition. Humans have been utilizing olive oil for thousands, thousands upon thousands of years. And it's very simply made because there's also this movement today, which I'm grateful for, towards addressing our consumption of ultra processed foods. Right now, the average American, the average American's diet is 60% ultra processed foods right now. Whoa. All right.
1: I'm not surprised at all, but still hearing you say that is startling. It's crazy. It's crazy. But we have to be clear. I grew up on
0: ultra processed I know you food. did. Me too. Brother. You know?
1: Ultra processed. So I look at my family, morbidly obese, have been my entire life, but many of them have like managed to get into their 70s and I and I and at the risk of completely derailing where we were headed, I don't think people of our generation are gonna be able to look the same as they looked and live as long as they lived because my mom didn't get into ultra processed food, let's say, until she was in her 20s. Whereas kids now in the womb, brother, they're into yes. ultra processed food. And I think that that 20, 30 year span is gonna be devastating to people of our generation. Like even I am so freaked out by the fact that I know my mom was eating terribly when she was pregnant with me. She smoked also while she was pregnant. That did not help. And then uh, my whole life, like I used to eat fried turkey nuggets and french fries, deep fried turkey nuggets and french fries, almost every night. You can't do that. You can't do that.
0: (laughs) Listen, this is getting into the fields of nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics. We have entire fields of science looking at how each and every bite of food that we eat impacts our genetic expression and also how our unique genetic makeup leans towards certain nutrients, certain foods that work better for us versus somebody else, right? Now, you're speaking to this really important thing, which is what if we're doing this earlier because there's so much of the body being made, foundational things like your brain being made out of these compounds, yep. right? And so, but also mentioning, you know, your family is very similar to mine, very similar. This also speaks to something that we look over, which is the resilience of the human body, it's right? You just amazing. said it. We can be in a state where we're probably... Experiencing four different chronic diseases and carrying an insane amount of excess body fat as well and still be able to keep trucking along And the body is always trying to sort things out and to fix things If you think about something like type 2 diabetes, which here in the United States somewhere in the ballpark of about 130 million Americans have type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes right now a huge portion of our population now if you look at this condition, so we've got dysfunction happening with our blood sugar, essentially. We've got these beta cells in our pancreas that are making insulin, right? And insulin's getting made and released in response to glucose entering our bloodstream from the food that we're eating primarily. Today, we have the ability to shuttle insane amounts of food into our bloodstream at one time that we never evolved with. And so insulin's gonna be hyperactive. And at some point, it's kind of like, it's, it's kind of like a spam an email, Mm. scenario happening where you keep getting this insulin message over and over and over again until the inbox, the cell is just like, I'm gonna block you, I'm gonna white I'm not gonna whitelist this message mm. and it's going to down regulate its interaction with insulin, right? So now we've got all of this glucose running wild in the bloodstream, which it's not exactly like this, but a good analogy is kind of like little shards of glass, right? It can just tear stuff up. This is why we wow. tend to have, you know, when, when we're in the state of insulin resistance and diabetes, capillary issues, losing vision, losing limbs and things that are further away from the core, right? So where things are starting to get a little bit more constricted, start to get torn up. All right, so with that said, even though we're in this state, the body is making an ad- adaptation to that abnormal glucose to keep you alive, mm-hmm. all right? What insulin resistance and diabetes is It is the body adapting to less than ideal conditions or circumstances to keep this person alive when exposed to all of this blood sugar that could kill you, Mm. all right? So there's this intelligence and grace that the body has to keep operating and trucking us along because what people tend to do on the surface is like, well, you know, we're still living longer. No, right now, this generation is the first generation and anybody can look this up that's not going to outlive our predecessors. That process is reversed, but also with our innovation, you would think our lifespan would continue regardless. We're not living longer, we're dying longer. We're just extending the suffering. With this ultra-processed food awareness, which I'm grateful for, we can get into a little bit of uh, teetering back and forth because something like olive oil is a Mm -hmm. processed food. How much can I heat it though? I'll answer that one second. With with olive oil, right? We've got a very simple processing. We take olives, we crush the olives with low temperature, Mm. right? That's how it's traditionally done. That is processing, but it's it's minor processing versus you taking, uh, you know, a couple of ears of corn and turning it into Lucky Charms, Right. right? Like there's no connection whatsoever to this thing, and it's so riddled with artificial colors and flavors and the like. How high how, how can you heat olive oil to answer that question? Fantastic question. Traditionally, we're not really cooking with it as much, by the way. Salad dressings, putting it on bread, right? These are some of the ways that would be used traditionally. If we are cooking with it, we've got to be mindful. The reason it's in dark glass is that it's heat and light sensitive, mm. all right? It doesn't change just because you pour it into a pan. So just keep that in mind. The common moniker What's is... What's happening to it when it's getting heated up, though? Is it, is it turning oxidation. rancid? Okay. Oh, and also, yeah, it can become rancid as well by not being packaged correctly. But olive oil is kind of, you know, if you think about wines, it could stay. Like, there was some research that came out not too long ago that they were finding old bottles of olive oil, like, you know, 100 years old or whatever, and cracking into it. And, and it was it, fine? I wouldn't say it was fine personally, you know, but it was edible and they didn't die. Wow. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay. So
1: I, I've heard a lot about olive oil, the benefits, all of that. I'm excited that you can actually layer that on and still get some added benefit, the epithelial lining in the blood-brain barrier, which a lot of people may not even realize. So they know they have one in their gut. Only... I have only heard people talking about the blood brain barrier as a similar epithelial lining recently. So I imagine a lot of people are unaware of that. If you're getting the breakdown in the gut, you're almost certainly getting the breakdown in the brain. So being able to add something like olive oil and get the effects is tremendous, but I eat a lot of olive oil. Mm -hmm. But I worry, I always heat it up, always. Mm -hmm. And I've never been able to get a great answer. I'm assuming it's because there's not a ton of research that says, okay, you can heat it to this point, but not above. Um, but like for instance, I don't use butter in my pan or anything like that. I eat eggs most days, but I'll put olive oil as the lubricant on the pan. Yeah. Um, but I'm scrambling eggs. So, I mean, it's, it's hot. Yeah. Am I doing myself any favors or would I be better off with something like ghee, which is clarified butter for those that don't know? Like what's the right move
0: there? I love that you ask questions like this because this is the level that you're on and also a lot of the audiences as well, which is like, we want to be our very best, mm. right? Most people though, Tom, are like, they're not thinking about their eggs and olive oil. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like sure, they're eating yeah, Dunkin' yeah. Donuts and like mini muffins. Yeah. So now we're getting into the minutiae, which is you're still so far superior, so far better off by having those eggs scrambled up in some olive oil than you would the like. Mm. Now what's the good, better, best practice? Even with the eggs, we've gotta be mindful of damaging the yolk, right, through high heat. There's some omega-3 fatty acids there, they're very heat sensitive. And so low to moderate heating with the olive oil, fantastic. And also even eggs, if you talk to a chef, right, somebody who's really versed in making eggs and omelets, They're cooking their eggs like longer, right? But I know myself, probably you too, I'm just trying to whip those bad boys up and you know, you know get, get busy, right? But the ideal practice is to be mindful that these compounds don't want to get damaged
2: hmm.
0: by heat. But we're still so far better off doing that than eating some frosted mini-wheats. Right, yeah. Frosted mini-wheats are so good though, Sean. It's That's like, why I brought it up. It jumped yeah. right up on my spirit top.
1: No, man, that's interesting. Okay, so that's a good angle on inflammation. Um, yeah. What about fat loss? Is, uh, are there implications with olive oil? Are there other things we can add? We'll get to subtracting in a minute, but if there are other things that we can add, is there something on the fat loss side that like?
0: Yeah. In my book, Eat Smarter, it was a randomized trial. And they put olive oil up against soybean oil supplementation, And also, there's a study that went MCT oil versus long chain fatty acid oil Mm. coming from things like vegetable or soybean oil. People had greater levels of weight loss and fat loss, and also improvements in their satiety hormones by including monounsaturated fats like from olive oil and also medium chain fatty acids, mm. like from coconut and things like that. But also we, of course, MCT oil is popping right now.
1: Now, if way. you had to guess, so knowing what you know, is that because they reduced their intake of the soybean oil or is it, be, like if they kept eating the soy, soybean oil and added olive oil, would they get the effect or is it that they've replaced the soybean oil
0: with olive oil? So they gave either group soybean supplement, soybean oil supplement or the olive oil or you know, another trial, MCT oil, mm. right? So As they're, supplement they're taking an oil, exactly. Okay, so, so this they're not isn't,
1: replacing anything. Right. This is just the supplementation. Same. Just
0: adding that piece in improved fat loss. That's why I thought again. Do they know so the mechanism of action or do you have a guess? Yeah, this goes back to, you know, I mentioned this a little bit earlier about like what you're making your brain out of, mm. but the same thing happens with the mitochondria and what kind of efficiency we are feeding our mitochondria. Right, And are we gumming up the system? So a good example, and we actually talked about this the last time we talked, this was published in the journal Food and Nutrition Research. And they were looking at the metabolic impact of a meal of whole foods versus processed foods. And so they had the test subjects to consume one of two sandwiches, right? So in one part of the study, they're eating a sandwich that is quote processed foods, which is, um, it was white bread and cheese product, right? And so we mentioned this last time, it's, that's craft singles. Yeah. You know, it can't, they can't legally call it craft cheese. It's craft singles because there's not enough cheese in the cheese. And so, and then that's the processed food sandwich versus a meal of whole food, which was multi-grain bread or whole grain bread and cheddar cheese. Right? Again, we get into the debate. This is why I started talking about this earlier. What's processed mm. and not? This is minimally processed. Cheddar cheese is like four things. Craft singles is like fifteen things. All right. Very mm. different products and also how long have humans had each of these. And so the, the two sandwiches are the same amount of calories, same amount of proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. On paper, they should have the same metabolic impact. But after consuming the two different sandwiches, when the people had the processed food sandwich, they had a 50% reduction in calorie expenditure, calorie burn after eating that sandwich versus when they had the whole food meal sandwich. And what happens is it's kind of creating this metabolic clog. It's gumming up the system. And again, your body's intelligence is just like, oh, I don't know exactly what to do with this. Let's tuck this away here. Let's... It's trying to protect us some kind of way and it's slowing down that expenditure of this less than ideal substance. Just trying to figure it out. It's kind of creating this confusion. Now, with that said, this boils down to what are you making your tissues out of? and this is one of the most important takeaways for anybody. When you're eating food, you're not just eating food, you're choosing what you're making your cells out of. Every cell in your body, from your heart to your brain, is made from food. We have this, we have this cognitive bias in our reality. We think we're just here, right? You are literally made, as I'm looking at you, I'm mm. seeing the food that you've eaten. Isn't that crazy? Yes, it is mind-blowing.
1: Okay, so all of my cells are turning over. I am literally what I eat. But do you pay attention to the... There are some very smart people that are like, a calorie is a calorie, brah. Yeah. And so it. this is one of those things. You're very eloquent on this point. I try not to be arrogant about this. I try to look for, as you say, what am I wrong about? Yeah. So I do not value myself for being right. I promise you. Like, none of this is coming from a place of like, I know something you don't know. But I have... a a like allergic reaction to people who are like, a calorie is a calorie and there's no difference. But there are really smart people who yeah. say that. And I don't, it, it may just be that I'm so ignorant, I can't see past like, but it seems obvious to me that if I'm eating uh, polyunsaturated uh, fatty acid or polyunsaturated fats that get stored as polyunsaturated fatty acids, that that is going to be materially different than another kind of fat even if they're stored within the same fat cell, um, but I don't know the ways in which they are different. So can you, are you familiar enough with their stance to steel man that argument? And then can you tell me where, what they're missing?
0: Because yeah, if you can, I would absolutely. love that. Because when I came into this, I went to a conventional university and my nutritional science class, one of those big auditorium classes, the first day of class, the teacher said that if you want to manage your weight, you just need to manage calories. And then the calorie dogma began. is true, by the way, To the, an extent.
1: If, if, I, if I make you hungry enough, if I deny you of calories enough, you will lose basically all of your tissues, but you will
0: get skinny. So we know that's
1: true, but where does that begin to break down?
0: Yes, so today, again, it has its place in science, and what we tend to do, of course, is We get bought into an ideal. We might see results with ourselves and even with people that we're working with. But what tends to happen is we'll ignore the people who aren't getting the result with our thing. Mm. It happens with the very best researchers, scientists, uh, physicians. We mean well, but we tend to think that our way is the way, right? like the Mandalorian. And there's so many other versions of that. And so today what we've uncovered is that there are epicaloric controllers. There are multiple controllers that control what calories do in your body versus the next person, all right? So one of them I just mentioned is the quality of the food itself is going to react differently in your body. So you might be doing a point system or managing your calories, but you're eating processed food and creating a barrier in your body's ability to expend the calories that it possibly could if you were eating real food. We, we, can't, we can't let that go. We can't just be like, that doesn't exist. But we get that tunnel vision when we're just like calories in, calories out. That's it, in the story. And I'm so glad you set this up by saying these are very, very smart people. But here's the thing. If we take a very smart person and we teach them the wrong thing, they become world-class at teaching the wrong thing. Mm. All right? And this happens a lot in medicine today. All right? But of course, there are great innovations, there are great things that happen, but we have to look at the results. Is it working for the majority of people? And the data clearly shows that most people who are doing a st- standard calorie restriction, they do lose some weight, then something happens. Something happens, which that something is, their metabolic rate adapts mm-hmm. their body's expenditure because when you cut calories, it isn't just magic fat loss time, it's going to change the way that your thyroid is working. It's going to change the way that your adrenals are working. It's gonna change the way that your brain is working. Everything is gonna get affected and your body that's hardwired for survival doesn't give a shit about you trying to lose weight. It's gonna adapt, right? But then it's just like, you just need to diet harder. You need to cut more calories. Have you tried a caloric deficit, right? I've seen this so much to the degree that people end up, they were coming into my office when I was doing clinical work, they're on 900 calories a day and the scales are not budging, Mm -hmm. and they're broken, right? They feel broken and just in tears, like I'm trying so hard, why won't this work for me? And oftentimes they have the story work before. They did this thing before and it worked. But this is us trying to say, you know what? This human body that has evolved over millions of years, we can just operate it like a calculator. It isn't this ultra complex, highly sophisticated. You've had on Michio Kaku. I believe, right? Michio Kaku said the human brain is the most complicated organ in the known universe, the most complicated object in the known universe. And we're just like, I could trick you, silly brain, right? I could trick you with a little caloric manipulation. Your hypothalamus is the master gland in your brain, and it's an integration point for your endocrine system and your nervous system, okay? Your nervous system is kind of responding to the environment and providing feedback, internal and external, right? And we know about the neurotransmitters that are associated with the nervous system. So we've got stuff that makes us feel good, stuff that makes us feel terrible, stuff that makes us feel pain, all the like. The endocrine system is your hormones. These are essentially chemical messengers that are sending messages, these little metabolic DMs from cell to cell to keep every cell in your body on the same page. You want the community with good communication. Communication breaks down, When people say my hormones are out of whack, they don't really know what that means, but the cellular communication is run amok. And so the things that you want to happen are not happening. All that's getting married in this powerful master gland, not to mention it's responsible for controlling your body temperature, your hunger, your thirst, so many other things. And when you suddenly go into this caloric restriction, Your hypothalamus, its job is to help your body to adjust to said restriction, all right? So that part of the equation is known, it has to be honored. And the way that people adjust or their body adapts is going to change from person to person. We can't just berate people like, you just need to cut your calories. That's not right. And the rate at which it happens to different people, that's another glaring thing. Like, is everybody gonna be, you know, is this gonna be like um, an assembly line thing? No, everybody's going to be different because we're all different. And so a great, another one of these epicaloric controllers, I took a moment to talk about the hypothalamus, for example. And this is one of the great things, this is about education and empowerment, right? Because even folks who are you know, really, they've, they've anchored into calories in, calories out, they still want to help people. And that's wonderful. We're not saying this is wrong, it's this and you have to understand and respect the complexity of the human body mm-hmm. and pay attention to your audience who's saying, I did what you're saying, and it didn't work for me, right? Because we tend to to want to block that out. With that said, researchers at Yale, it's pretty smart people, right? Researchers at Yale found that everybody, well not everybody, a lot of people today have heard of the vagus nerve,
2: Mm.
0: right? Connecting the brain and the gut, this gut-brain connection. And the gut itself is often called the second brain or the enteric nervous system. There's a tremendous amount of neurotransmitter. There's so much it's action crazy. happening in the gut. It's an intelligent force itself. So what the researchers at Yale University found was that the, the human brain is basically keeping tabs on. It's kind of like a governing entity with the gut. And based on your brain and your gut's assessment of your caloric needs and your nutrient needs, your brain can tell your gut to decrease or increase the assimilation of calories from your food. That's so crazy. But it makes sense, because your body has this intelligence. Now the question is, if I'm riddled with, if I've already got all of this caloric energy stored on my body, why would my body still allow me to assimilate so much of this caloric energy? Mm. And this gets into the breakdown of that gut, the breakdown of that intelligence between the brain and the gut. This gets into food scientists being able to manipulate these systems and things to go haywire, right? But with that said, if we are eating real whole foods and eating foods that really resonate well with our body, it's very difficult in the first place to overeat those foods. Like This is getting into more of the practicality, not just using, looking at the human body as a glorified calculator, but that it has this intelligence. Because I know you've done this, try to do this as well, I know a lot of guys do. We might try to put on a little size, right? And we're eating a a caloric uh, Abundance—we're eating more than enough, but it's just so difficult to put on that extra size, that extra weight. You got the dirty bulk, makes it easier. Doesn't say I can put on fat, nice and easy. Okay, the yeah, muscle is a whole different. The question. dirty bulk is easier, but if you're doing that with real food, you know, sweet potatoes and uh, high-protein foods, fish, and things it's like that, miserable. It is. It yes. Not only is it difficult, eating so much. it can be miserable. And I was fascinated by this topic, so I looked into it a little bit more. And I believe the researchers are based in Kansas City. But what they found was essentially that our tongue, even the human tongue is ridiculously intelligent. But I was wondering, why do we suddenly not have a taste for something, right? We're eating a food and then it's just like, ugh, mm. right? Something that's good that first bite, few bites in you're just like it's not, not as attractive, but it slowly goes away. We're, our taste buds literally change the proteins that we're producing as well change as we're eating in your mouth, in our mouth absolutely. And over time, the overall palate, because you know you've heard this as well and probably experienced this, our, our cravings and our desire for certain foods changes. Mm. like we could just lose our desire to do what we were doing, which I was getting fast food. 300 plus days a year if i had a buck i'm pulling up in that in that drive through right the drive-thru yeah. diet you know oh what i mean? did it for years but now it's just like i have no attraction whatsoever to that food and if i eat it it tastes so fake mm. so fake there's this intelligence that's been nurtured but if i kept eating that stuff guess what's going to happen it's going to switch over and i'm going to crave these artificial things especially these chemicals you know um artificial colors, flavors. You wanna talk a little bit about artificial flavors? Tell me. So this was a huge breakthrough in food science when researchers did the thing that kind of like what we're talking about today, everything breaks down into chemistry, right? So a certain flavor is just a compilation of certain chemicals, it's a chemical complex. And so using a gas chromatograph, they could identify the flavors, the chemicals that make the flavor of strawberry per Mm. se now we could take that strawberry flavor and add it to other shit, right? So now we got strawberry-flavored ice cream. No strawberries necessary. Strawberry-flavored soda and candy, all the things. And it might not taste exactly like a strawberry, but it's just enough to muddy up the metabolic waters and confuse your system, right? And so... Because you're saying that my body will react to those cues in some
1: way, that even though it isn't a strawberry, it's tripping enough of those signals that my body anticipates a
0: strawberry? This is where some of the magic happens right here because we evolved attaching certain nutrients and caloric density to certain flavors. Again, this data is not just coming from us, it's coming from our ancestors. Mm. And so when we're getting a certain flavor note without that even sweet, if we get a, a sweet sensation but it's not coming along with the expected nutrients and or caloric density, we think we could just trick our body but now, a recent study just came out. You might have seen it getting passed around, looking at the changes that happened with the microbiome in association with artificial sweeteners. Not to say again that they can't be used to great success for some people, but you can't think that the body and the brain is stupid. Like, I'm going to give you the sweet taste with none of the side effects. And one of the studies that I put in Eat Smarter as well found that the consumption of, you know, like sucralose, for example, increased the production of insulin. All right, It's not supposed to, but insulin's going up. What happens when insulin goes up? Insulin is that lock and key to open your fat cells up, store more Mm -hmm. shit, right? We think we can trick the system, but our bodies are far smarter than us. And I started the show saying that, like, there's so much that we don't know. And we're trying to figure stuff out. We don't want to act like we've got it all figured out when it comes to, like, artificial sweeteners, for example. They have their place. It's cool we can come up with this stuff, but we have to keep an open mind that it might not be exactly what we think it is. I'm going to reframe it a little bit. Tell me if this lands.
1: I get the impulse to say that the body is smart, but it might be more useful for people to understand that the body's kind of dumb and it's lagging behind because what it is, is you had a blind watchmaker over millions of years of evolution and the people that started secreting insulin or whatever, when they put it in their mouth, they survive longer than the people that waited until it hit the gut and actually got digested, and by then it's too late, and you're, you know, your sugars are elevated for too long, and so you end up dying younger than other people. And because of that, now as you're you know, in a modern context and you have all this fake food, your body doesn't realize that, oh, there's a difference between this thing which is giving me these signals, which is why it tastes so good, and we're like, oh my God, this is amazing, because evolution told me, yeah, eat strawberries, eat these sweet things, because they're only here in this narrow window, mm-hmm. as it's leading up to winter, you need to put on a little fat, and so one, I trigger a response that's more likely to make you fat from things that taste like uh, fruit, And but the reality is that the body doesn't see the difference between this engineered thing, which mm-hmm. shouldn't trigger all of those responses, but still does, and this is why people should wait until the end because I have something tied to this mm-hmm. that you've said that I think is brilliant and is really gonna unlock something for people. But I am gonna make people wait till the end for it. Um, but that to me, once I understood, oh, okay, I get it. My body thinks, because of evolution, my body thinks these mean X, Y, Z, but they don't mean that anymore. And so now I'm getting myself into maybe a, a better bit of trouble but still a bit of trouble mm. than if I were just shoveling
0: the full sugar version of these things in my mouth. Yeah, I love that. It's such a, it's a great balancing act to look at, let's look at the other end of the spectrum, which is the body's just dumb and just responding to these mm. inputs. And the reality is probably gonna be somewhere in the middle here, as with most things. Yeah. But, you know, just taking that on, like this is how our system can be manipulated, clearly. We have brilliant scientists who were able to, you know, again, use a gas chromatograph and break down that flavor complex, but also create things where we have this vanishing caloric energy, yeah. right? Where we eat. I was just talking to my youngest son about this because he was asking about teeth. Like, um, something came up about wisdom teeth, right? And I just got into this conversation about it that you know, a lot of American adults, like our wisdom teeth don't come in. Mm. right and they're all usually impacted or they're crooked yep. or whatever and it didn't used to be that way like our all of our teeth would just come in normally right but a part of that my wife brought it up was she's from Kenya right and so like they grew up eating sugar cane for example like chewing on stuff having hard stuff to chew on but it was more so her mom's generation with her generation they get getting more and more processed food coming mm. in right and also very low tier carbohydrate-based foods versus the hunter-gatherer. Like they have the Maasai there as well, mm. who still have this husbandry and they're doing like the, the milk and that kind of thing. Then they've got another tribe who is out with the fish and that kind of thing. Better dental health, bo- both areas, right? And so we are getting this conversation about not chewing hard stuff. And he, he had this thing come up, like what about like chips and stuff? Like that's, that's hard, that's, but it's like one crunch, like one yeah. good crunch, then it turns into sauce yeah it turns into mush and it's this vanishing caloric density where the brain you got this big intense flavor and you've got this chewing action that takes place but then it it disappears so our bodies get tricked in a sense going back to it can be a little bit slow it can be lloyd christmas (laughs) right it can be a lloyd christmas version of itself that's dumb and dumber for anybody who's not seen the movie um but that aspect of the body being tricked into thinking It's consuming less calories than it actually is Mm -hmm. because, hey, it disappears. It's not a big input coming into my gut, right? So we have brilliant scientists who figure this this stuff out. At the end of the day, though, the human body is going to take its due and it's going to figure out or stop trying to figure stuff out when it keeps being faced with all this abnormality, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these things that it's never been exposed to. And that's what we're seeing now as a society. We're the sickest society in the really the documented history of humanity. We have the highest rate of chronic diseases ever known to man, and we're supposed to be so much better than this. We are so smart, we're so technologically advanced, why are we so sick? You know, this should be one of the things that we think about every day. Like this doesn't make sense. And to have this generation be the first generation to not outlive our predecessors, that our lifespan is reversing, that should put off all kinds of red flags for us to say, hey, if we're gonna be results-oriented, something's not working. Something in this equation is not working. Could it be that we're trying to trick our bodies into doing the things we wanted to do versus us understanding the things we evolved with and it
1: get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com impacttheory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, hel com slash impacttheory. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. And more of that. Can I give you my my favorite quote from Thomas Sowell? Please do. The last 30 years have been marked by exchanging what worked for what sounds good. As somebody who was in the food industry, I can tell you we were breaking ourselves in half, trying to like do right by the people eating it. But science changes and so who knows? Like 10 years from now, we may realize things we were doing didn't make any sense. But we really were trying, like sincerely, even just the the right metabolic answer over profitability. And we made decisions that cost us hundreds of millions of dollars. So I put my money where my mouth is on that. But inevitably, time will look back and say, ugh, you should have done it like this, you should have done it like that. I recognize that. But we make things that don't necessarily work because, hey, we wanna drive the cost of food down. Hey, we wanna make sure that the farmers that are making the things that make food taste better and people like it more and you know, therefore they will eat them, we wanna make sure that we subsidize that. And so it's like these string of things. But I remember back at Quest, that this was still in the height of fat is gonna kill you days. Yeah. And we were like, no, you guys have this all wrong. Like fat is going to be this huge thing. This was that I had never heard of ketogenics when we first started Quest. And we start learning about it. And I'm like, oh my God, like this is amazing. Could have cancer implications, like all this stuff. But this is all happening as the government is like, we're going to tax food with fat. And like they were going crazy on anti-fat. And we're like, whoa, like you may mean well, I'm perfectly willing to accept you actually believe what you're saying, but you are moving us in the wrong direction. And so when I look at, age or the uh, length of life expectancy now going backwards. And I think, but they don't intend to have that effect, but damn, we replaced a lot of things that worked for things that we wish would work, but don't actually. So at what point do we have to hold ourselves accountable, pharma, food, like at some point, somebody's
0: gotta say this shit isn't working. Yeah, it takes a lot of courage to you know we all have our biases it's important to come into the conversation with that and be willing to continuously question your biases and that might mean that you're going to be wrong and here's one of the other things especially about food science you're going to find stuff that validates two totally different perceptions but what i like to do is like what does the majority of data say and also my biases towards what have humans been doing the longest but even still i have to be open to the fact that Maybe a Twinkie might activate some kind of hidden human pathway. Yeah. Like, fucking, we can become telepathic or something. I'm After willing to be- go on record
1: to say Twinkies do not do that. <laughs> yes, you're 100% right. And even that, I'm joking because you're right.
2: Yeah.
0: You have got to open yourself up to that. Yeah, sure. And it's beautiful because what happens is this really interesting thing takes place where you start being right a lot more when you're willing to be wrong and proactively That's- looking for ways that you're wrong. Right now we're living at the golden age of my way is the way. And this is coming from the top down in society and the bottom up. And so I I love this piece because, you know, just again, what we've experienced the last couple of years, the most obvious thing was not addressed. And I said this at the very beginning, and I was looking at the data coming out of Italy and seeing that upwards of around 89% of the folks hospitalized had one or more pre-existing chronic diseases and I was like oh shit like this is our super bowl moment this is our time we've got to focus on getting our citizens healthier the instant argument comes up of we can't get people healthier overnight right and so let's not talk about it was that sort of the underlying the the problem is when fear takes over as well mm. you know that's another part of the ingredient the recipe that can make us ignore essential basic things but here's the thing that I wanted to communicate if you look at the vast amount of peer-reviewed data that we have we can absolutely derange our metabolism in a day or we can improve it in a day right so just for example one night of sleep deprivation Mm -hmm. guess what's going to happen to your immune system guess what's going to happen to your insulin sensitivity guess what's going to happen to your leptin and all the things there's going to become dysfunction opening increasing the risk of you getting sick period And so Appalachian State University researchers found that simply going for a 20 minute walk, instantly boosts immune parameters, most notably neutrophils, natural killer cells, just going for a walk. One walk? But this is, it's a short term boost. But what if you have that practice integrated, right? Mm -hmm. Not to say that this is the end all be all or some kind of like shield against a viral infection. But here's the thing that we, we did what we typically do we have a problem, we try to find a drug for it, right? So I, I had my eye on the data coming out of Italy and I was just being a voice of reason and logic, like let's stay balanced in this so we don't, we don't venture into the ridiculous. Cut to a year later, I get a study from the CDC. I know people at the CDC mm. and I'll tell you m- most of them, the vast majority, pretty much everybody that I know at these entities, they really do wanna help people. There can be, of course, decision makers and people in the process that have some, what what we tend to do again, if there's a nefarious outcome, but money's tied to it or the reputation, all the things, they make tough decisions, right? So I keep trying to validate and hold a space for people to be good people. So I'm coming into it with that. Now, here's what what I got. This was published in July of 2021. Huge meta-analysis looking at the data from over 800 United States hospitals and over 540,000 COVID-19 patients. And we'll put the study for people, you can put that in the show notes if you like as well, because seeing is believing. Mm. So compiling this huge database of people, what they found was that the number one risk factor for death was obesity. And the thing is, we can have this justification, well, people won't do it. Look at how we were galvanized to do things. I just went to the gym today and I see all the stickers on the floor. Stay six feet apart, stay safe. Guess what people were doing? They were doing the things. If it was coming from a place of authority with a little bit of science and encouragement, that fear could have been used as a tool for real empowerment, right? Do you think there was a perfect storm?
1: Because I think, so part of it feels like 100%, so many people like confronted with their own mortality still will not change their diet. There's a book called Change or Die which highlights how few people will actually make the necessary changes when even the change they have to make is deadly simple, they still won't do it. So there's that, but it also coincided right as we were getting to the point where you can't call somebody fat or obese, that's shaming them in some way. And so now it's like people are called onto the carpet for saying that you're overweight, you got this whole movement of healthy at any size, and it's coming right as we're like we have to do something right now, and we know that people won't change, and you put all that together and years in, and it's still
0: like considered almost
1: like you're being mean, it all by came to a head about, at the
0: same crazy. time, right you know, having that conversation so blaming so you're blaming fat people for the problem, right no, we're just talking about reality, we're talking about science, and Doing the work where I'm sitting across the table from a patient, and they're coming in, they're dealing with something. To be able to look them in the eye, I've seen this so many times. I haven't met one person who didn't want to be healthy. All right, this is a this is a difference. Of course, there's this like people won't do the thing. We use that in 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 medicine so much that people won't listen. You just have to get better at your job because there's a way. Mm. And so it's finding out what is that person's motivations you know what are, what are their what are the what is the leverage point that you can find because within that human is the potential for so much but of course what happens is we get into a place of complacency we have a perception that that's way harder than me sitting here having my doritos which i used to go to 7-eleven open the doritos pump chili and cheese into the back nice. shake it up all right so that's that so much good. easier than me going for a walk every day Why on earth would I put myself in that discomfort? Mm. But I'm creating this physiological discomfort and disease in my body all the while that is going to force me to make decisions, right? So it's just like you get to choose your hard, you get to choose your difficult. Most people are never even presented with that idea, right? They're never even presented with that idea. And we're so disempowered in our culture. And also we have all of, we have a societal revolution of convenience and complacency and disempowerment and lack of movement. We have a society that has made everything so accessible. If we wanted to, we, we, didn't, we wouldn't have to get up right now to get food sat in front of us. Whereas our ancestors, there was just so labor intensive just to get a meal. Blessing, but also potential curse. All right, we have to keep this in context. So this story that people won't do the thing, with motivations, people did shit that they never thought they would do the last two years. We can really look out and see that. At the end of the day, you know, If we can provide more empowerment, science-based empowerment, and create a culture, right now we've created a culture of sickness, mm. and so to be healthy, you're weird as fuck to be the healthy person. What state are we in where it's weird to be healthy, right? And a lot of people have seen the, the study that came out about a year ago, maybe it was two years ago, but this big meta-analysis, and they were looking at the metabolic health of the United States citizens. And they found that 88% of United States citizens are metabolically unhealthy. How many? 88%. What?
2: Again, we'll give this
0: to you to put in the show notes for everybody as well. And again, if you look at, it's no longer the exception versus the rule. The rule is, the rule is poor health and disease, all right? So let's go back actually to that study I mentioned from the CDC. The CDC was getting tagged in everything related to COVID. Mm. But I was actually reading the studies, re- looking at the references, not window dressing, looking at it even an abstract sometimes can be misleading. 540,000, over 540,000 COVID-19 patients, over 800 US hospitals. Number one risk factor for death was obesity. The question is why? Is that, pro-instate, that, that pro-inflammatory state of inflammation? We're pre-inflamed. What is COVID-19? An inf- inflammatory condition. So you get You already got a bonfire going in your body. Now we come in and we throw some extra fuel on the fire. What do you think is gonna happen? The
1: bonfire, just for people that are really getting into the nitty gritty, is the immune system is already- Yes, hyperactive. Kicking off the cytokines. We now know the idea of a cytokine storm. So you have the immune system attacking the body itself. It's kind of like uh, if you have a fly in your house if you hit it with a fly swatter, all is well. If you bring in a shotgun, you start doing damage. If you Ooh. bring in 150 shotguns and you just start <laughs> obliterating everything, you're gonna have massive collateral damage. Absolutely. And so you're getting this, the attack of the, the um, virus with all these shotguns and now you're just tearing the body
0: apart as you try
1: to end the virus. Exactly.
0: And we can see this with you know, other metrics. We can measure homocysteine, C-reactive protein. We could see that inflammation is a problem in the body. And this is a consistent thing we see when we're venturing into being overweight and obese. The, here's the second leading risk factor for death. Mm. Number one was obesity. Number two was fear and anxiety related disorders.
1: Yeah, I had never heard that until I started researching for this episode and I was like, what? How I is mean, it? I get
0: it, but that's that should be, shocking. That should have been everywhere. How in the world could the second leading risk factor for death from COVID published by the CDC be anxiety and fear-related disorders. Mm. What, is, what the hell's going on here? What's the connection? At that time, when the study came out, I had already been sharing so much data on psychoneuroimmunology, on the psychosomatic fe- effects of COVID, all published data, like we know this happens. We have entire field of psychoneuroimmunology, understanding how our mind and our thoughts affect our immune system, mm. right? So if we're in a state where we're riddled with fear, like we've been the last two years, bombarded, fear without context. Not to say that there isn't something for us to be concerned about and protect ourselves, but to get to the place where we're debilitated and we're frightened. Just at the sight of another human being, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be pumping out all of these catabolic stress-related hormones, and it's just going to be hammering away at your immune system, especially over time. We didn't just have a week of it, two weeks, a few months, years. Mm -hmm. What do you think's going to happen? it's not good. So that was the second leading risk factor for death. The third was diabetes and its related complications. Again, wow, going back to I can't to this
1: believe issue. that anxiety and fear outpace diabetes. Yeah. It's crazy. That's fascinating to me. I would have, for so long, it seemed like everybody was lumping those two together, obesity and diabetes. So it's very interesting to me that they seem to have a slightly different mechanism of action so that I, I would have thought the diabetes would be even more life-threatening than just garden variety obesity. Why do you think they're flipped? Yeah, that's such a good
0: question. And by the way, I wanna throw this little bit of data out here too. So this is published by the CDC as well. Healthcare workers obviously had a great level of exposure. So mm. they're a great data set. And plus controlled environment, we can get better feedback. 89% of healthcare workers who were hospitalized with COVID-19 had at least one pre-existing chronic disease, hmm. and over seventy-five, right around seventy-five percent of them obese. Okay, so this isn't again, sort of. It might be a correlation. We know this is is the issue, and so with obesity and diabetes, these two they do tend to come hand in hand. You know, they're like they're paired up. All right, they're they met on Tinder. They're you know what I mean, whatever. But there are different metabolic situations happening. All right? Because somebody can be not, they can have type two diabetes and not be obese. And also people who are obese don't necessarily have to have diabetes. This gets back to this very important foundational understanding that we're all different mm. in our body's metabolism. We have a unique metabolic fingerprint and how our body adapts to things is, can be dramatically different from one person to another. But What we do is we tend to put these umbrella Diagnoses on people right so they get the diabetes label if they have you know the fasting blood sugar is too high or hemoglobin a1c is too high whatever the case might be you're diabetic that's it no two people have the same diabetes ever because they're a unique human entity and everything is different in that body there are of course similarities where we can classify people and provide a treatment but oftentimes it's that standard of care and this is why we suck at fixing it, because we're not taking the person into consideration. Another thing with battling this issue is we're fighting against ourselves. You know, We're fighting this internal battle and there's a lack of respect. Like our fat cells, this is my bias. Tom. Well, our fat cells are smart too. Of course, again, they could be dumb, but they're really intelligent at helping to keep us alive. Through our evolution, they, were developed, they developed in such a way that they can keep us alive during times of famine but now we're living in a famine that never comes, not even remotely close. As a matter of fact, it's anti-famine, right? And our fat cells have the capacity to expand their volume by a thousand times. A thousand times. Crazy, it's insane. So now the problem is as that's happening, it's sending out that distress Mm. signal that something is wrong here, like I have too much stored in this system there's some kind of infection, something is breaking down. But here's the beauty, when we start to move away from the behavior patterns that's causing the problem, the body knows how to fix itself. Mm -hmm. It knows how to sort the stuff out, right? This is where we can get into conversation about a caloric restriction or the like, but the caloric restriction naturally happens when we're eating nutrient-dense foods because it starts to cover all of these bases, these metabolic bases. Mm -hmm because even the process of fat loss itself, which is lost on so many people, there are key nutrients that are involved in the process, even the the mitochondria itself. Our mitochondria is the end destination. We have lipolysis where the fat cell lets go of its contents, but that shit can get reabsorbed, all right? So lipolysis is a step. Now it needs to get shuttled to the mitochondria to actually be used as fuel, right? We've got uh, cellular respiration and beta-oxidation. So now that that's getting utilized, here's the, here's the crazy part. The mitochondria really are all of our cells. I can't think of anything that isn't dependent upon the sodium-potassium pump. These key electrolytes that enable our, all of our cells to do all the shit they do, mm. right? Magnesium is also another critical electrolyte in our, in our mitochondria being able to, we having this kind of uh, um, mitochondrial genesis, creating new mitochondria. We need magnesium to help it to do that job. And the last point, this is so cool. When I was in my university classes, I was taught that the energy currency of the body, ATP. Everybody knows ATP. ATP. No, that's not the bioactive form. The bioactive form is when ATP is binded with magnesium. Hmm. That's when it's actually bioactive, able to do shit. I do not know So that. this is why electrolytes, these key nutrients are so important. So if we get dogmatic and we're just like, cut your calories, are you deficient in these key electrolytes? Shit's not going to work as good. Mm. What if we start stacking conditions in people's favor using our primitive understanding of nutrition with trying to treat the body like a calculator, but also adding on the advanced stuff, which is epicaloric controllers, so we can really start to get people healthy.
1: Man, this stuff gets really complicated. There was was something you said earlier that I wanna go back to around the idea of how much your mind, your psychology influences things. But I also wanna be clear. So when I say that the body is dumb, that's probably a more useful way to think about it. But I also believe that if you wanna believe in God, look inside the cell. Like every time I look at how cells function, which is way over my head, but even the parts that I can grasp are so terrifyingly complicated that you're like, wow, it is hard to believe that we just like came yeah. to that. So it's, it's pretty intense. But now applying that to the mind, it's really incredible how powerful the mind is. And when I was researching you, you were talking about a study where they gave people the same shake. It's the same shake. But they told people different stories about those shakes. Walk us through that because this was so startling to me yeah. in terms of somebody trying to uh, figure out this complex game
0: of weight loss. Perfect. Yeah. So this was a study coming out of Stanford at the time. And the lead researcher was Alia Crum. And she wanted to find out if our thoughts might affect our metabolism. And so they blended up a big batch of milkshakes for study participants to come by. And on some of the milkshakes, even though they were all calorically the same amount, they slapped a label on some of the milkshakes that said 140 calorie sensible milkshake, right? Quote sensible. Right. And even though they were 380 calories, and some of the other ones they slapped on a label that said 620 calorie indulgent milkshake. Right? And so they allowed test participants to consume them. They were running a hormone panel to see what was going on with their biochemistry. And so here's what happened when folks were consuming the indulgent shake that they thought was a high-calorie indulgent milkshake, their ghrelin levels, which ghrelin is this kind of glorified hunger hormone that drives us to seek food, seek nutrition, seek caloric density, seek key nutrients. It it creates a situation where we are driven towards food. Mm. When they had the indulgent shake, their ghrelin levels dropped as if they had three times more calories than they actually did. Whoa. All right, so essentially, because they believed they were consuming a lot of calories, something that was super indulgent, their ghrelin levels responded. Ghrelin also plays a big role in metabolism overall and uh, metabolism of fat. Mm -hmm. Their ghrelin levels and their desire to eat dropped as if they had three times more calories than they actually did. On the other side, the sensible milkshake, and even again, keep in mind, All the milkshakes are the same amount of calories, 380 calories. When people had the sensible milkshake, their ghrelin levels barely budged at all. That's so crazy. Non-significant, okay? So these folks, what's gonna tend to happen is you're going to be hungry sooner after. Even though you had more calories than you thought you had, ghrelin didn't change, okay? And this speaks to, again, every thought that we have creates correlating chemistry in our bodies instantaneously. It's happening 24/7, always, will never stop. But that's the part of medicine. In the last couple of generations, there's been this separation between mind and body, and it is the most ignorant thing because you cannot possibly separate the two. And so, understanding and again pointing people back to their choice and your ability to choose the thoughts that you want to think. For example, we can tell ourselves we can basically Joe Dispenza, you are the placebo. So after I read the study, I immediately thought of him, and I really got it. We can tell ourselves that this meal is incredibly nourishing and indulgent, even though it might be a low-calorie meal, right? So when people are doing the calorie restriction thing, and they might not be happy with the fact that they're eating this you know, uh, low-calorie salad, but telling themselves, and this gets into the debate, like, are we lying? Are we like faking it till we make it? Doesn't matter. You're changing your biochemistry and your body works even
1: if you're telling it to yourself like if i know that it's a 380 calorie shake can i tell myself it's 160 calories or you know that it's the indulgent so that i stop being hungry
0: great question because we know the greatest effects come when it's coming from an authority figure right not surprising so another study that alia crumb and her team did was a skin prick test And basically, they gave people, you know, they pricked their skin and created this reaction. A histamine kind of skin rash would come up. And then they brought in researchers to tell them that they're going to apply an ointment. And either it's going to be an an agonist or an antagonist. It's going to either make the skin rash better or it's going to go away. Okay. And so as study participants were given the the cream that was a non-treatment, there was no there was no treatment factor or, or active ingredients in this cream that can do anything. All right, But the test subjects who rubbed the cream believing by their physician, by the researcher, by the scientist, that this would help their, their rash go away, it start to go away within 10 minutes. It's bananas. The, the study participants who had the, the antagonist cream where it's going to get worse, the skin rash got worse within 10 minutes. Now here's the thing, the degree of change, how quickly it changed and how effective it was, was based on the study participants belief about how intelligent their practitioner was, how qualified they were, Mm. their aptitude, their faith in them impacted whether or not the rash changed and how fast it changed, right? So keep this in mind, what usually happens is we outsource our thinking for our bodies to other people. And I know this deeply because this is how I got into this field in the first place. Mm. I had no intentions on working in health and wellness. I, it just wasn't in my perception. But when I went to that physician experiencing some leg pain and he had me get an MRI of my spine, First of all, I didn't even know why I was getting an MRI of my spine when my leg hurt. I was so disconnected from how this entity works. And I go in to see him and he puts the MRI up and he's looking at it with me. And he tells me I have these two ruptured discs and severe degeneration L4, L5, S1. And I'm just like, I'm like, a, I'm, a, I'm a kid. I'm 20 years old. I'm like, okay, so what do we do? Let's go. What do we do to fix it? And he looks at me like, whoa, you know, he kind of even pump, pumps his hand like this, like, Pump your brakes, kid. And he says, son, you have the spine of an 80-year-old. Jesus. This is unfortunately something that's incurable, but we're going to help you. We're gonna get you some medication. We're gonna help you to manage this. It was a key word he said, we're gonna help you manage this. I'm untreatable, uncurable, uncurable condition. It's only downhill from here, but he's gonna help me manage it. And when I shared this with you before, I." I didn't really, because I've been thinking about this the last couple of years, I had some extra time, Tom. <laughs> I was like, I asked him a question that I believed prior that I had no grounds to ask him, which is, is this due or is there anything I can do? Should I change the way that I'm eating? Mm-hmm. I asked him that question, had no grounds for it. So I thought, should I change the way I'm eating? Should I change the way I'm exercising? And of course he said, this has n-, he, these are the exact words, this has nothing to do with what you're eating but then he wrote me a prescription to eat some pills, right? But after thinking about it again and again and again, that nutritional science class that I had was before this happened. This was Mm -hmm. almost two years before. I was like 17, 18 in my first uh, nutritional science class, which was a prerequisite on the pre-med track. I didn't have to take it, but I thought nutrition was about fitness. And my teacher was overweight, all right? And so when I saw him, I'm like, he can't really teach me how to be fit. Just so like I never said it and never really said the words to myself, but just I realized that I had this little disconnection of trust, right? And so I had this in my memory bank that nutrition matters, but when, when I asked that question for him to give me that immediate feedback that nutrition, food doesn't matter in a diseased state, my doctor was not just overweight, he was obese. And I remember him leaning over on me, right? And just like, he was clearly not well. And he's probably doing the things that he believed to be effective. He's not just, you know, not trying to not be healthy, right? But in that moment, what happened to me was the nocebo effect, right? Giving someone a negative injunction from an authority figure that things are going to get worse. Mm -hmm. Just like that skin prick test. But globally, like for myself, I went from a nuisance of a pain to chronic debilitating pain within a couple of weeks. Because I believed I'm unhelpable. My life is over. Right? And so I carried that with me day after day for two years, seeking out multiple, which I always recommend people if you get a bad bill of news, please seek out another opinion. Getting a diagnosis, it's only the same, like bar for bar, the same diagnosis around 20% of the time from okay. physician to physician. All right? Now, I'm talking about clear difference. But just in general, you know, 20, 30, 40% of the time, there's going to be some plays within that diagnosis that are going to be different. Seek that out. But here's the thing I learned over time. If you're going to seek out another perspective, don't just seek out the same type of thinking. Einstein, he had this wonderful statement that's attributed to him that we can't solve a problem from the same level of thinking that created the problem, Mm. right? And so I applied that even in the the help that I would implore people to seek out, like ask somebody with a different way of thinking about this thing, right? But I didn't, I didn't know that piece of data at the time. So I went to the same kind of conventional thing. And each time I'm heartbroken leaving there and I'm leaving there with another drug. Celebrex was popping at the time. So I was on Celebrex. And I got got Celebrex from the second guy. Eventually get sleeping medication. Eventually, you know, the list goes on and on. I found my little own over the counter plus prescription cocktail to knock me out
1: Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. night, because I am in so much pain. You yeah, see, this is where it gets interesting, because you've got the age-old recommendation, like thousands of years old, let food be thy medicine. Uh, Hippocrates, I think it was, that said that all disease starts in the gut, And so we've known this stuff for a long time, and this goes back to that idea of replacing what works for what sounds good. So drugs are powerful, man. Like when you get a drug that really works, like if you've ever had a bad headache and you take Tylenol or Advil, it is awesome. It is awesome. And I've thought you know, a dozen times more, I'm sure, that I've taken it and thought, I'm so glad I live in an age where I can actually get medicine that has this kind of impact because it's really powerful. So I get how people end up getting confused, but man, have you got to really look at the data. And so rarely are people actually looking at, was this effective, did this actually work?
0: Mm. Yeah. This gets us into this really important part of the conversation, which is, I I had a conversation with Dr. John Abramson, and he's a professor at Harvard, and he's been huge, and it was not his intention to be involved in so much drug company litigation, pharmaceutical mm. company litigation. And he was just brought in as an expert witness one time, and then just kind of got pulled into that universe. And so he's under so many different NDAs and things like that. He can't talk about a lot of details, but some of the outcomes that we've seen, even in the Vioxx scandal that took place via, I could have been put on Vioxx at that time I was put on Celebrex, Vioxx killed, affirmed in the data, over 40,000 Americans. Whoa. affirmed in the data, over 40,000, we're talking about the low end, mm. killed them from this drug that, again, according to the guy who was involved in the damn case, all right, Merck knew about the dangers. They saw it in the data, in their, in their clinical trials. But they still put the drug out because, hey, these non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are hot right now. We gotta put ours out, right? And so, again, like there's these little brushes with fate that I have. And specifically, he even shares some of the stories in his book that you know, young people were dying, right? So like, uh, one of the stories that he shared was an uh, athlete. You know, She hit her head and she was like having headaches. They gave her Vioxx. She ended up freaking having a stroke and dying. Yeah. You know? it so crazy. But we gotta keep this in mind. Merck's doing better than ever. They mm-hmm. killed 40,000 Americans, we could argue intentionally. They knew the dangers and they put the drug out. And not to mention all the stuff they did to try to hide it. That's why they were hit with such a huge lawsuit, the fines, all that stuff. But these fines to them are like, it's it's nothing to them. Like they actually have accounts just kind of like for the lawsuits. Like it's already set aside. They have the most powerful legal teams in the world. So with that said, knowing so many people who work at pharmaceutical companies, mostly good people, People, they're just trying to, they're trying to serve, they're trying to help people, they really believe in the mission, but they're not in the lab. They're not looking at the data. They're not paying attention to the fact that our physicians are not. When we go to physician, we think that there's their medical school training for this particular drug they're prescribing. The vast majority of the time, they're educated on that drug by a sales rep. Mm-hmm. A sales rep is educating your doctor on a drug. And they have the chance, if they want to, to look at the peer-reviewed data because that's how a drug gets pub- you know uh, approved by the FDA as part of the process. They have this peer review process. But here's another thing that John showed me that blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. Most of the drug trials that are published in our most prestigious journals, the review board, most of them never actually see the real clinical trial data. They get a summary from the fucking drug company. Who's actually looking at the trial data? The FDA isn't doing that. They don't do that. And a little not-so-fun fact that I've really been trying to press into culture because, again, we need to check these systems so that when drugs are necessary, we have safety. The FDA, over 75% of their scientific review budget is funded by drug companies. Our FDA is supposed to be regulating and checking, keeping in check drug companies are funded by those same drug companies. Because they pay for fees these user fees. The, yeah. the advent of user fees is a recent thing that took place all under the guise of getting drugs. We need more drugs. We need drugs to people faster. The FDA is like, we need mm-hmm. money. So drug companies are like, we'll give you the money to get the, get more employees, more computers, whatever you need. Make the process faster. User fees. Now, so but here's the thing, Tom. It's not yeah. just 75% of their scientific review budget. The FDA's overall budget, 50% of it is coming from drug companies. We have, like... It doesn't take Michio Kaku, right? a brilliant level thinker, to see, like, there's a huge conflict of interest here. This is dangerous. But for me, there's still, there's still surface, I dug more. Published in the journal Science, one of our most prestigious journals, they look at the process of scientific review for a drug to see, are not just the entity of the FDA itself, but are individuals at the FDA itself being compromised by drug companies? Mm. And so what they found was that-
1: (laughs) Yeah, I know, I've spent too much time with
0: you online. I know the punchline, this is rough. What they discovered was that, when a new drug is brought up for the review process, the physician advisors who are on the board for approving this approval process end up getting paid by a drug company who's involved in that clinical trial, almost 40% of the time they receive a payment from that same drug company or a competitor, okay? Now, how is this legal? It's a post hoc payment. So they're not paying them and then getting the thing. It might be six months later. Right. It might be nine months later. They're getting either cash, they're getting a grant, they're getting, they're getting money. And this is literally, there were cases where millions, hundreds of thousands, thousands of dollars. How is this even possible in what's supposed to be the gold standard for drug regulation in the world? It's so riddled with layers of corruption that even the good people who are trying to get good products, helpful products to people, it's being compromised at every level. Last part here I've got to share. In 2020, two thirds, because again, how is this all happening? Why isn't Congress or our Senate, why aren't our leaders going after these drug companies in this process and addressing this corruption? In 2020, two thirds of United States Congress members received a check from a drug company.
1: Whoa, now that one I
0: didn't know. So it's, it's the question is, how can we get this sick? How can we be this disconnected? Why are we so mentally unwell? The number one cause of death right now here in the United States, Tom, for people between the age of 18 and 45, our our quote prime of life years, the number one cause of death right now is fentanyl. Really? Yes, number one cause of death. Not just overdose, specifically fentanyl. Why isn't this, you you know your shit. Why doesn't everybody know this? So I've, I've started hearing about fentanyl in the last, I
1: don't know, maybe a year, 18 months. I'm probably way behind the curve on that. Uh, what is, is fentanyl an opioid? Yeah, it's in that family of
0: opioids, okay. but it's a, it's a synthetic opioid. And is it used in the medical system? That's where it started, it's where it got its start. And there are great documentaries on this. Yeah, absolutely. And the question is why would, when we hear overdose, we tend to have this perception of the person mm. that overdosed. Man, I've got so many people, just floods of, st- because of putting this data out of like their, their uncle, their, like people are going in because they have pain and end up getting hooked on these opioids. They have no intention on being a quote abu- drug abuser. So many people, and also fentanyl is so deadly, like literally just a few sprinkles of it can kill you, but it's being like laced in so many other products today. Right, so cocaine. From a drug, like illicit drug perspective. Yes, so it's being laced in a lot of things, but also. Because then, it makes the high better? Like what's the, if it's yeah, that you, dangerous. You can so. put less of the other stuff in uh-huh. just a little bit of fentanyl. And right? fentanyl's cheap? Oh, it's super cheap. It's the hottest thing going right now. Again, to the degree, it's the number one leading, it's the leading cause of death. That sound, it doesn't even sound right. I know it doesn't sound right. So I spent a, I spent a lot of time, almost too much time, like looking into these figures and trying to see like, breaking down how this, something like this is possible. Mm. This goes back to per How Purdue. many people are dying per year from fentanyl? Do you know? Or even just opioids in general. In 2015-ish, we had about 50,000 drug overdose deaths, just overall. By 2020, it was 100,000. It doubled. Wow. Overdose deaths doubled in that time span more and more and more fentanyl again this was the trigger was purdue pharma purdue pharma knowingly they 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 packaged things up so that this wasn't this was a non-addictive opioid
1: wait fentanyl is non addictive no that was how
0: they packaged it up okay absolutely but it ended up being just as addictive as anything else yeah and deadly and so uh hbo max there's a great documentary and also, there's a series on Hulu starring Michael Keaton, of all people. Dope sick. Kind of like, yeah, dope sick. I haven't seen one. it. Is it good? It's pretty good. Yeah, it is pretty good. But that's like a fictional impl- uh, implementation of real events mm. versus Crime of the Century documentary on HBO Max. Or, of course, like because we have such a visual culture, I like to point people to those things. There are entire books on this subject matter as well. Obviously, the data's out there. It's scary. My more terrifying question is,
1: why are we turning to drugs so much? So all the like rat studies and stuff, and I don't know this literature well, so I'm very much uh, reciting headlines here, but the headline feels so right, I would be surprised if it isn't accurate, that it is very difficult to get a rat addicted to drugs in its open field, like where it can literally just live its life. But if you put it in a cage, then they'll get addicted lickety-split. So my question is, what is going, like if we, gave, if we dropped drugs into the Savannah 150,000 years ago, would they get addicted or would they be so um, occupied, I won't even say so thrilled, but so occupied with their life of hunting, gathering, loving, marriage, death, you know, dealing with attacks, like all that stuff that they just wouldn't think about it, or would they, boom, it's just that kind of thing and they would all get addicted as well. I love your thinking, man.
0: You know, um, There's always been mind-altering substances mm. that humans have tinkered with, right? And there's a big movement towards you know, plant medicine and all these different things for certain experiences. But historically, what it would be involved with is something that might be a rite of passage or might be involved in like, it's a, it's a experience that is a tribal aspect to it. It's always been done with this layer of respect to the thing. I also have a feeling that they were, and I don't
1: know, I am super ignorant on drugs, but like looking at what they've done to weed, where they've made it hyper potent, like massively increased the THC levels. We've done the same thing to fruit. So I have to imagine, you know, that the drugs while obviously still psychedelic may not have packed quite the punch. Of
0: course, way different scenario. You know, again, our ancestors happening upon this stuff might, you know, take a little dabble and just swear this stuff off right mm-hmm. it just might be overwhelming too much to the sense all the things right but we even though our even though our genes haven't changed much in this time our environment has and our level of intelligence in a sense and i'm saying that to say i'm trying to set up the answer which is today is very different because we're seeking it out we're seeking out a solution to our pain we're What's seeking causing it, our pain I've shared this many times, we have epidemic levels of physical pain and mental pain. Mm. Mental health issues, all time high, you name it. ADHD, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, everything is up, everything. And nobody's stopping to ask like, what is causing all of this dysfunction, right? Part of it is, obviously our exposures, our environments are very abnormal. Our food is very abnormal. And there's a direct inroads obviously with what we're putting into our bodies having in essence, we can have degrees of these kind of um, mind-altering experiences, right? Because believe it or not, that bowl of Lucky Charms is a mind-altering experience. No doubt. Right? And so, but we have this classification of, oh, these are safe to do. In our society, alcohol is huge, huge, right? It's one thing you're out at the stadium getting fucked up versus you being at home by yourself and doing it, right? And also it's socially acceptable. If the police really want to get DWIs, they just sit outside of stadiums, but mm-hmm. they don't do that. Right? It's not fair game. But as a that is the most socially acceptable psychoactive substance that kills more people than other drugs until fentanyl came along. Right? But that's, even still, alcohol is way up there. It's not in, in that same kind of classification. Right? Mm-hmm. Violence. Right? Weight gain, all the things. Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is... It's instance way it's the top, top 10 too, liver disease, Whoa. right? So it's either 11 or 10 right now, right? Our livers are getting fucked up, right? What are the inputs here? Obviously, alcohol is one of the big ones and also obviously sugar too. Okay, so this sets up the point. Oftentimes we have this perception of what somebody who uses drugs is, right? We negate the fact that over 70% of United States citizens are on prescription drugs, okay? Right now, our society, we are very adept at taking a pill to make us feel something. That's a really terrifying number, okay? It's normalized. And so whether it's self-medicated or your doctor is your dealer, we have a culture that is seeking to suppress our pain, physical and mental. Instead of Removing the root cause or addressing what's causing the manifestation. I was just talking with Wendy Suzuki, uh, Dr. Wendy Suzuki, she's a neuroscientist out of NYU. I've done some guest lectures for her uh, neuroscience students as well. And she has a wonderful book. It's called Good Anxiety. And she's addressing our epidemic of anxiety, epidemics, because anxiety isn't just one thing. Every person is different but directing people towards something that's more sustainable and effective, which is addressing what is causing the anxiety. And not just where drugs are appropriate in, in instances. Absolutely, it's great to have these things. But when it's relied upon, what tends to happen is we're suppressing something. Our body's giving us in our mind this mm-hmm. important critical biological feedback that something is off here. But we don't want to feel the feeling. I don't want to feel that. So we push it down, we suppress it take mind-altering substances, whether it's a drug, whether it's food, whatever the case might be, and we're not connected to our humanness. So going back to our ancestors happening upon this stuff, they were more connected to their humanness. Today, we have these voids within our psyche and within our spirit and in our bodies. We're so disassociated from how shit makes us feel. And we're so externally focused. Social media, it's a golden age of television. It's a lot of shit, a lot of great shit competing, right? To not be able to have control. Most people don't, Tom. They're, They're binge watching daily, all right? It's great to have a nice binge watch. I like Stranger Things. It's great, but I put it in its pocket. And if I'm gonna be a healthy, sovereign individual today, I need to focus more on creation than on consumption, right? Cultivating my humanness. The biggest change that happened to me, Tom, over those two years of pain, I was in so much pain, I was afraid to get up. So I sat and laid on the floor as much as I could in this one bedroom apartment in Ferguson, Missouri while sleeping on the floor. Everything changed unexpectedly when I decided, number one, of course, I decided to do something, when I'd been outsourcing my health and my potential to everybody else. What happened? The the last physician that I saw, you know, again, I was seeking out, my friend would be like, oh, this person's the best. So, three other opinions. And the final one, I was sitting at home, I had my pill bottle, sitting on the side of my bed, about to take these drugs and to try to knock me out. And I just really visualized, for whatever reason, I don't know why this happened, but I visualized the doctor being at home with his family and. You know kicking back by the fireplace maybe smoking a pipe or some shit you know like a very cartoonish kind of r- romantic idea and but the feeling tone was he's happy he's not thinking about me I left with the baggage he's living his life and I out my I outsource my potential to somebody who's not even thinking about me not to say that he didn't mean well no no, no but the fuck that that's a keen insight very keen yeah
1: and so So he's not thinking about me, I'm thinking about me. But what makes you, in that moment, are you deciding something is possible or I'm just gonna try, I'm not gonna outsource
0: and I'm gonna start over? Yeah, in that moment, the trigger was a change in my question, my habitual question. Because at the time I was like, why won't he help me? Why won't somebody help me? Why me, why me, why won't somebody help me? And the question changed to what can I do? What can I do to feel better? And I had never thought about that once, those two years. Were you fed up and you got to that point? Did you read something?
1: Somebody say something? That, that moment right there is the most profound change anyone will ever make. So I really
0: want to know what made you make that change. Being able to work with so many people over the years, this recipe is different for everybody. But for me, it was this recipe of ingredients. One of them was my grandmother. And she had been, in my mind, harassing me to check on me those last two years. Cause it's like my grandma, like, I'm fine. Like, leave me alone. She's grandma. just like, are you good? Are you just good? She's checking in on me, you know, what I felt to be way too much. She knew I wasn't okay, but I'd always been the one that was okay. Was and it
1: knowing that she loved you? Like, cause I really want to know the recipe yeah. to, it won't work for everybody, but there will be more people like you. So somebody loves me.
2: Yeah.
1: The doctor's not thinking about me. What else? Yeah.
0: It wasn't just love. It was belief in me. She believed that I would be successful. She taught me from a young age that I was going to do something great with my life. I was gonna be a great man, she would say. My life conditions didn't match up to my blueprint of what my life was supposed to be. And I, I Tom, the reason that I was at this place was because I've been fighting so much of my life up to that age of 20. Like, I'm, again, I'm in Ferguson on, sleeping on the floor. You know, my mattress is on the floor. And I'm barely hanging on in college. I was the first person in my family to go to college, let alone graduate. Mm. And I grew up in a state where I, I got kicked out of my entire junior year. I graduated in three years of high school. I got kicked out for fighting. Right When I went to college, you'd think I'd get my shit together. I got kicked out of college for fighting. Right? I grew up in an environment where we solved problems through violence. And I didn't really feel like I was a violent person. I didn't want to start anything. But if you started, I'm going to finish it or I'm going to... Do something right and so that way of living I, we live my most my most formative years when i really feel like i went from being like a kid to really taking ownership kind of of my myself and my life we live right next door to a crack house and my father my stepfather i just thought because we saw the devastation happen with my uncles dying from crack cocaine, continuously like getting fucked up and ended up in prison, all the things. I thought we established that this wouldn't be you. You would never do this. And he's in this house next door. And I was 12, 13 years old. I heard my mother outside yelling at him. And I just kind of peeked my head down the stairs like, and I heard what she said that he was in, in there in the crack house. And I went, he started to walk up the stairs. I wanted to kick him down the stairs so fucking bad. I, w- I could have I hurt him. I loved him so much. So what I did instead, I ran over to the, it was a four family flat and there's a glass door to, to get to their real door and I punched the door and I broke the glass of this crack house where they have guns. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I was just screaming, I hate you, I hate you. Why'd you do this to my family? Ah. Uh. Fortunately, a friend of the family grabbed me, they hid me. Like I was hid in this, you know, in a closet somewhere, and like I could still hear all the commotion outside, and they were looking for me. And they were able to de escalate the situation. But again, I was responding like this. And again, you could see it maybe rightfully so, right? But I grew up in this very volatile circumstance. I was the one that was supposed to make it. And here I was. I gave my power away. The one who always took his power gave my power away when he gave me permission to. That first physician, when he said I'm unhelpable, it gave me. It gave me a permission slip to stop fighting. And I took it. same the chills. So, but that didn't sit well, obviously, with my spirit. Eventually, it took two years, and I'd gotten, you know, I was overweight and in a lot of pain. But I, my grandmother harassing me, you know, checking in on me. And coupled with that vision of, you know, this person says, he can't help me. Why am I listening to him? What can I do to get healthier? My life is supposed to be great. What can I do to get well? And I changed the question. And as you know, like the human brain really, questions are the answer. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: You know, there's this process in the brain, it's called instinctive elaboration. So when you pose the human mind a question, like this is why shows get us, right? the open loops, like it's seeking out to find answers. And I asked, what can I do to feel better? And also I'm a very practical person, which I turned that shit off for those two years. I was like, what, what are some actual tactical things that I could do to like get better? Like I need to lose weight. First thing I did was slim fast. Don't recommend, it's not very effective, but it's because of like, okay, what, what do I have access to? But the low hanging fruit for me, I'd always been an athlete. And so I just started going to the gym. Every doctor said, don't do anything, which the worst thing you could do is do nothing. I could still fucking walk, Tom. I could walk, I was in pain, but I could move. And they are telling me, don't move. That's our advice to you, that's how we're gonna help you. But then again, they don't talk to me again. They send me out the door with a back brace and some drugs and say, don't do anything. And now not only is my spine atrophying, my entire physiology is. And so just being able to start to move my body to upgrade the food I was bringing in, because again, the real solution at the end of the day was, what was I making my tissues out of? Mm. My disc that looked like two pieces of fried bologna on that MRI initially, the light should be shining through them. It was made of absolute shit, like absolute garbage. I ate fast food every day. Unless again, like I didn't have a dollar. Then I ate fast food at the house Well, ultra processed foods, which was my favorite meal, Velveeta shells and cheese. I just eat a box of that shit, you know, and ramen noodles, you know, like again, I'm just eating processed food every day. So I'm making my tissues out of really low quality shit. My body's doing the best it can do to keep me alive. Mm. What if I give my body the best stuff? The sulfur bearing amino acids, the vitamin D, like you need vitamin D just for assimilation of nutrients for your bones. We talked a little bit before the show, I broke my hip at track practice, just running. Why are my bones so brittle? All I knew was calcium from the commercials, you know? But there were so many other things that I uncovered. And here's the last part of the story. The solutions were there the whole time. I just wasn't attuned to them. The books, the resources, the people, they were there. I was just so busy in my world of I'm unhelpable And things can't get better that I just ignored the solutions, possible solutions, access to solutions that were there all along. That's so powerful.
1: There's a quote, I forget the exact idea, but never explain an outcome to nefarious intent what can be explained by incompetence. And so I don't think people mean to fuck us up. I don't think the drug companies mean to fuck us up. I'm grateful for a lot of the drugs. I don't think the food industry means to fuck us up. I'm grateful for hyper-palatable food, cheap and convenience. I don't think social media means to fuck us up. I'm grateful for the people that I've been able to connect with. You and I wouldn't be sitting here together Absolutely. if it wasn't for social media. So all of these things have had huge benefits in my life, but like you, I sat on the edge of the bed one day and I looked at my life not moving in the direction that I wanted and I decided to take complete responsibility for the outcome of my life. Now once you do that, you have to start looking at the data. What's actually working? What allows me to predict the outcome of my actions better? And so that puts you on this very useful trajectory. But if you never have that click over moment, then you get prescribed the drugs, you take the drugs, you go to McDonald's because it has the dollar menu, or at least it did when I was younger uh, and you know all of these things sort of snowball you into a really dark place and i I am concerned right now because of the way things are going and I feel like the I mean you gave some crazy stats today eighty percent this eighty eight percent that seventy eight percent this like it's just really really startling and so I'm about to tell people the coolest piece of information I've ever gotten from you, which will be the punchline to all this. But before I do, tell people where they can follow you and learn more. Perfect, man. It's always
0: an honor to talk with you. Always um, same for you, man. People can find me, my show's called The Model Health Show. And you know we do master classes on specific subjects and I strive, same as you, to bring on the very best people in respective fields. And grateful to say it's been the number one health show many, many times over. And again, this is coming from a guy from Ferguson, Missouri, sleeping on a mattress on the floor. And for me to do this, it really is a testament to what's possible. And I'm grateful to do the work that I'm doing. Um, people can, of course, you know, hit me up on Instagram. I'm at Sean Model on Instagram. I do a lot over there. And my most recent books, Eat Smarter, uh, USA Today national bestseller, and Sleep Smarter, international bestseller. And it's creeping its way into half a million copies sold of a sleep book, which is it's incredibly an awesome rare. Sleep you book. know, it really helped to change the culture. So, you know, those are the places people
1: can connect with me. It's amazing, and I highly recommend it. Okay, so back to what we were talking about. The quote that I wrote down when I was researching you is: "Food is information, but so are thoughts. Thoughts are information, and once people realize what what you are eating is." having an impact on how you think, believe it or not. So I went on a, a horrendous journey of anxiety dealing with that and I realized that 70% of my anxiety, the part that made it overwhelming and made my life near and was from um, diet drinks. And once I removed that, I could not believe that changed my life in, in no small way. And the thought that the, the biggest part of it, it's not the total cause of my anxiety, but the biggest part of my anxiety was something I was drinking. Just, it seemed impossible. And so getting people to recognize that, that food is information. It's communicating to you at a cellular level. It's making you think in different ways. We didn't get to it today, but you've talked about how uh, in prisons they did a study. If you increase their nutrition, make their nutrition superior, it decreases the violence pretty substantially. It's insane. So getting people to understand what you're eating, believe it or not, matters. How you sleep matters, your exercise matters, and what you allow yourself to think matters. And so I hope that they don't need to go through a two-year struggle like you did or the multi-year struggle that I went through with anxiety and instead they can learn easily what you and I have learned with great difficulty and recognize what they think matters as well and that they have to get that right because it's all information. Sean, thank you so much for being here. Speaking of good information, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care, peace.